I will invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14. We've been teaching a series on uh, manifestations of the Spirit of God. We've uh, entitled it The Lightnings of God because that's one of the references in Zechariah chapter 10, which uh, we'll probably get to sometime during the service this morning. John chapter 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples uh, at the Last Supper, just before he is betrayed, just before he goes to the cross. And, uh, and he is confirming some things in them. He's giving them some last instructions. He's telling them some last-minute things before he goes to the cross and what he knows is yet to come. Uh, they don't, but uh, they didn't understand, even though he told them plainly. And in, uh, in so doing, Jesus said, we'll start in verse 12. Jesus speaking to his disciples. Uh, how many of you are disciples of Jesus? Well, that means this belongs to you too. He's not talking to them as ministers or apostles, but as followers. So he said, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me. See, we know that's not just restricted to people that are in the ministry. He didn't say those that are called to the ministry by me. He said, he that believeth on me. Well, that means everybody. That means anybody. He that believeth on me, or literally in my name, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. Now, notice when he's talking about. These uh, are people that have worked with him for three years in his earthly ministry. They've seen his miracles. They've, they've participated in many of them. They've done some of the same works as him already. We have uh, several places in the Bible, where, uh, or several gospel records, I should say, that, uh, that tell us about where Jesus gave to his apostles authority to cast out all devils and to heal every manner of sickness. So they've already been doing that. They've been casting out devils. They've been healing the sick. Now Jesus is saying, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. Well, why is that news to them? They've already been doing his works. He's talking about it at a different time period. He says, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. He's talking about the church age. He's not talking about during his three years of, gospel, of earthly ministry that's recorded in the Gospels. He's talking about the church age. He's saying that there'll be greater works in the church age along with the same works of healing and deliverance and so forth. He's saying there'll be greater works in the church age. Now, it's, uh, I was reading after, um, uh, well, a, a, a pastor that was used in the, the gifts of the Spirit in a great way this last week. There's, uh, there's some books of his that are out of print that, uh, that I got a hold of some of the old manuscripts and, and that type of thing. And, and he said this. He said, uh, and uh, in, in his day, he came from the, or through the healing revival, uh, died in um, early 80s, I guess, uh, Right, well, it was either 1979 or 1980, I guess it was. He was uh, one of Brother Hagin's dearest friends and uh, uh, several years older, maybe 10 years older than, uh, than Brother Hagin was. And um, he and his wife had a very unique ministry in, in the church that he pastored, small church in Texas, but, uh, but boy, the power of God just flowed through that place like a river. And he said something about this, about this greater works, because you need to realize Pentecostalism hasn't been fashionable for very long. Do you realize that? One of the reasons that the healing revival came around in the 40s, when it started in 47 and lasted through 58, 1947 and 1958, one of the reasons that the healing revival came was to expose people to the move of the Holy Ghost because it had, by and large, died out in America. 
Not it, uh, the Azusa Street Revival in early 1900s started some things. And so there were, there were little pockets here and there. But the healing revival really brought it to the forefront and set the stage for the charismatic revival in the 1960s, which enabled people by the hundreds of thousands to become filled with the Holy Ghost. God had a master plan in this. Of course, the people involved with it, uh, in it in the early stages, they didn't know what the plan was. They just saw God moving. Well, this, uh, this pastor said something about these greater works. He said, whenever I hear some of the church talking about, well, we're doing the greater works, those that don't believe in the move of the Holy Ghost, those that don't believe in signs and wonders and miracles, the miraculous and so forth, he said, I think about the guy that said, um, the rich man that had filled his barns with plenty and said, I know, I'll tear down my barns and build greater barns. He said, that's what a lot of the church is trying to explain away with these greater works. They're doing works of the flesh. They may be good works, but they're doing works of the flesh, and they think that if they do more good works of the flesh, it'll take the place of the greater works or the works that Jesus did by the, by the Holy Ghost, the miraculous works. And folks, you can't substitute anything for the Holy Ghost. What's going to substitute? What preaching is going to substitute? It, it, it amazes me how some people nowadays seem to have the idea that they're doing a better job of preaching than Jesus did. Because, see, Jesus needs signs and wonders and miracles to prove that he was sent by God and that the teaching and the preaching that he did was from God himself. But I guess we don't need that nowadays, huh? We must be better preachers so that we don't need the miraculous to confirm the word. How stupid can you get? We need it more now than we ever have. The Bible says that as the further we go toward the end time, men will get worse and worse. Well, that means the devil's doing more and more. Well, would it make sense that you need more or less supernatural or miraculous works the worse the devil gets? Certainly. That's why the Bible talks about lightnings, the lightnings of God to bring in the precious fruit of the earth just before Jesus returns. So Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me or in my name, either way, they're interchangeable terms, he that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. Now notice the next thing he says. The very next verse, verse 13, he said, And whatsoever you shall ask, that word ask means call for, require, or demand, like you'd put a demand on your bank account when you use your ATM card or where you, when you uh, write a check. You're putting a demand on your bank. He said, whatever you call for, require, or demand in my name, that's what I'll do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 14, if you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now notice the next thing he says. He starts talking about giving them the comforter, who we know is the Holy Ghost. He's talking about this in context with the greater works. He's talking about this in context with asking or calling for or requiring in his name. He says in verse 16, And I'll pray the Father, and he'll give you another comforter, that he may abide with you until the apostles are dead. That's not what he says, is it? That he may abide with you forever. That he may abide with you forever. Now, folks, these are instructions to the church. These are not instructions just to the twelve. These are instructions to the church that he may abide with you forever, forever. Abiding with the church forever, the Holy Ghost abiding with the church forever, is spoken of in context of doing the same works and greater works because Jesus goes to the Father. It's so simple you have to have a theological degree to miss it. That's what he's saying, isn't it? He that believeth on me. 
He that believeth on me. He that believeth on me. The works that I do shall he do also. Makes you wonder what the church is believing in. Now, I don't mean to be critical because I realize that most of it is not a refusal to believe. It's not even a desire to, to put the Holy Ghost away or out of the work of the church in the last days or in our present day. I think most of it comes down to ignorance of the Holy Ghost, which is the very thing Paul wrote of in 1 Corinthians 12 to alleviate. I think it comes down to ignorance because most of the church world doesn't know how to believe in the name of Jesus for the supernatural. Would you agree? Turn with me over to, to uh, Acts chapter 1. Here's Jesus speaking to the same group of people after he's been raised from the dead. Let's start in verse 1. The former treatise I have made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. This is Luke talking about the gospel that he wrote before. He's saying, my gospel took you up to the point where Jesus was crucified. Now here's what happened after that. Until the day in which he was taken up, after that he had, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom also he showed himself alive after his passion, after the crucifixion, after his death, by many infallible proofs. I love that phrase, infallible proofs. By many infallible proofs. It seems to indicate that Jesus did enough that they couldn't afford to doubt. It seems that Jesus did enough to where they just said, look, you know, if it wasn't so much, we might doubt this, but now we know that we know that we know that we know that we know. Unto whom he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. Would you not like to have been with Jesus for those 40 days? Well, the things that you would have gotten from Jesus in those 40 days are the things that Paul wrote to us in, in the epistles and the letters to the church. You wouldn't have gotten any more than that, probably wouldn't have gotten as much. The disciples, the apostles didn't get that much because when Paul started writing things, Peter said, wow, Paul is writing things that are hard to understand. So he didn't get it in these 40 days, did he? See, our natural mind thinks that if we could experience something physically, if we could have uh, uh, been present at a certain event, then that would solve all of our problems. But it doesn't. Because the things of the Spirit of God are a faith proposition. They're not an experience proposition. They're a faith proposition. And you're never going to experience everything that there is. If you were to experience everything that there is, that means you would exhaust God or God's power or God's works. And that will never happen. So there will always be something that you see or read in the Scripture that you will continue to pursue and, and press forward toward. Press forward to. Right? There's always going to be more of God than what we get. Because God's infinite. To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs, being seen of them forty days, and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, and being assembled together with them, commanded them, it wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. He commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which saith, ye, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. 
Now, if you back up to chapter 20 of John's gospel, you'll find out they're already saved. Jesus breathes on them. They, the, uh, Jesus appears after his resurrection, breathes on them, and says, receive the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Well, if Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit, and something didn't happen, then Jesus participated in a fraud. He led them to believe something that was not true. But in fact, something did happen. They were born again. Now Acts chapter 2, he's, or Acts chapter 1 rather, he's telling them, you've been commissioned. You've been told what to do. You've been told to go into the world and preach the gospel. You've been told that the works that I do shall you do also and even greater works because of the Holy Spirit coming, because I'm going to the Father. You've been given all this instruction, but you can't do it without the power of the Holy Ghost. I like the way John Osteen used to say this. Jesus commanded the apostles, don't even think about having church. They've been commended, commended and commissioned and instructed about the, inst uh, about the institution of the church. But Jesus is saying, don't even think about having church without the Holy Ghost. I like that. I think we ought to follow that same pattern today, don't you? So they're asking him, what about restoring the kingdom to Israel? They're always thinking naturally. And Jesus said, kind of pushes that off the way, out of the way. He says, it's not important for you. Nobody knows the day or the hour about that stuff. Verse 8, but you shall receive power. Here's the important thing. But you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now, there are two words primarily that are used for and translated power in the New Testament. One really means authority and the other means power or ability. This is the word for power. It's the Greek word dunamis. It's where we get our English word dynamite from. It means ability. But you shall receive supernatural ability after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You shall receive supernatural ability. He's got to be talking about something supernatural, doesn't he? Because if it wasn't supernatural, what's to wait for? He's not talking about an earthly event. He's not saying, well, when the sun comes up, then, then everything will be fine because this stuff works in the daylight. He's not talking about a natural thing. He's talking about a supernatural thing, right? So the power he's talking about, the ability he's talking about, has got to be a supernatural ability. That's what this means. But you shall receive supernatural ability after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Boy, it would be good for you just to meditate on that, that phrase right there. You'll receive supernatural ability after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Because I know most of you are spirit-filled. Most of you have had the Holy Ghost come upon you in the same experience. But we focus on other aspects of the Holy Ghost infilling other than the supernatural ability, don't we? Most do. Some people make it a focus. Some people get it out of focus, it seems. I just don't think the church has recognized the supernatural ability that's available to us, by and large. There may be some, but by and large, I just don't think the church has recognized that it's supernatural ability that equips us. We just get used to being Christians. We get used to the things that, that we're accustomed to. We get used to the ways that God uses us, the, the natural gifts that we have from him the parts of our personality that God seems most likely to use. And we fail to recognize that there's supernatural ability available. 
but you shall receive power, supernatural ability after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. For what purpose? And you shall be witnesses. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. What's he saying? He's saying, you'll do the works that I did in greater works. That's what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 14. At the Last Supper, he said to his own disciples, if you don't believe me for what the things I've said, believe me for the works. In other words, let the works be a witness that I am sent from God, that I am the Christ. Now he's saying, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Holy Ghost because that supernatural ability will enable you to be witnesses to do the same works and greater works because I go unto the Father so that people will know you're of me just like I was of God. It's interesting that he did not say they'll know you by your preaching. Because that seems to be what the church world nowadays, the present day church world, is relying on. Well, if we preach Jesus, then they'll know that we're of God. That's not what Jesus is saying. Now, don't get me wrong. There can be inspired preaching. There can be empowered preaching. No question about that. We've been in enough uninspired and unempowered preaching to know the difference. Of course, not in this church. I wish that were completely true. Nevertheless, we know the difference, don't we? We've experienced that. We can tell what the difference is between something that the Holy Ghost is really inspiring, something that the Holy Ghost is really empowering, and something that people are just doing. You can go through the motions, but it's a supernatural ability that will enable us to be a, a, a witness of Jesus. Supernatural ability. Turn with me now over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I wish I knew where I was going with all this stuff. Paul writes to the church. Now, it's important for us to recognize that he's not writing to an individual in the church. Now concerning spiritual gifts, verse 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. We've talked about this before, but the word gifts is in italics. The translators added it trying to help us understand, but gifts is, gifts of the Spirit is not the only thing he talks about in chapter 12. The word spiritual in the original Greek is plural, spirituals. Now concerning spirituals, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. That doesn't make much sense to us. That's why the translators tried to help us out and put a word in there. The word spirituals in the original Greek means things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Now, that's what he's talking about in chapter 12. Things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. Not just manifestations of the Spirit, but he talks about the body of Christ. He talks about ministry gifts at the end of the chapter. And all of those are things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. But the problem is they're ignorant of things pertaining to and of the Holy Ghost. I think that, uh, my personal opinion, I believe that that's the general state of the church world today. Very little of the church world is not ignorant of the Holy Spirit. Now, I would draw your attention, I would draw your attention to the fact that Paul says in chapter 1, verse 7, that they come behind in no good gift. An expanded translation of that would mean they've got all of the gifts of the Spirit in manifestation. So they're not ignorant of the Holy Ghost from an experience standpoint. They've got it working. They're ignorant of the Holy Ghost from a standpoint of the order that God intends to be carried out or to utilize in the church so that the Holy Ghost can freely move and bring blessing and benefit to everybody. 
Now, today it seems to be a totally different class of ignorance. Because, as I said, Paul did not write this to an individual at the church at Corinth. He didn't write this to the pastor of the church. He didn't say, look, here's how you need to uh, run and operate your church services. He didn't say, now, you're the pastor, so you're the one that's going to have the Holy Ghost moving through you, so here's what you need to know. That's not what he's telling them. He's writing this to the church at large because all of them are operating in the Holy Ghost to some degree. I say all of them. That may not mean every last one of them. But as a, as a whole, they're operating in the, in the manifestations of the Spirit freely. But they don't know anything about order. He's bringing information so that they can have order so that those manifestations of the Spirit can bless everybody rather than be a curse and bring reproach upon the church. Today, it's a different, it's a dif, a, a different type of ignorance. Paul did not write this to an individual at the church of Corinth. He didn't write it to the pastor of the church of Corinth. He didn't write it to the Pentecostal church in Corinth. There's only one church in Corinth, and that's the church that's operating in the power of the Holy Ghost. They don't have different divisions of churches. They don't have different denominations of churches. They don't have anything other than a church or the churches that are in Corinth that... that were grown out of and built out of the work that he did and the work he planted. It's not like today where you've got one church over here that believes in the Holy Ghost, another church over here that says that's been passed away, been done away with. None of that stuff works nowadays. It's not like that. There's one church that God started, and that was a church that was endued with supernatural ability from God through the person of the Holy Ghost. How did we get so far away? Folks, there's only one answer to that, and that is man came up with his own ideas. But here's the instruction of God to his church. Don't be ignorant of the Holy Ghost. Don't be ignorant of things pertaining to and, the Holy, uh, pertaining to and or of the Holy Ghost. Verse 2, you know that you were Gentiles carried away into these dumb idols even as you were led. That means even before they were saved... They had supernatural leadings in their life. Corinth had more idols, more temples to idols. Archaeology has told us, as well as uh, historical records, have told us that the city of Corinth was the Las Vegas of his day. It had more temples to more idols and more gods than any other temple, that, or than any other city that they have uh, record of or they've made discoveries to. So he says, as Corinthians, you know what it's like to be led you were led by these idols and the spirits that were behind all this stuff. You've been led by the devil before. But it's different now. You need to know that if you're being led by the Holy Ghost, you're only going to magnify Jesus. Wherefore, I give you to understand that no man speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed. And that no man can say that Jesus is Lord but by the Holy Ghost. Now, folks, you can teach a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. So he's not talking about the words itself. He's talking about the inspiration behind the words. He's saying when the Holy Ghost is in manifestation, you will confess that Jesus is Lord because that's the work of the Holy Ghost. First thing he wants them to know about the Holy Ghost is he always points to Jesus. Not to an individual. Not to man. He always exalts Jesus. Jesus said about the Holy Ghost, teaching the disciples, he said, he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. Well, what does he hear? He hears about Jesus. 
because Jesus is the way to the Father. To hear anything else would be a waste of time because there's no other way to the Father except by Jesus. And the Holy Ghost doesn't waste his time. So then he tells us, now there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it's the same God that worketh all in all. We could take time and talk about each one of these things, but please notice both God the Father, Jesus the Son, our Lord Jesus, and the Holy Ghost are all involved in supernatural manifestations. If God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit are all involved in the supernatural manifestation of power, God must really be into this stuff. He didn't just designate that to, to one of them. He didn't say, well, Jesus, you'll be in charge of being the head of the church. That's a big-time job. So, Holy Spirit, you just you know, do stuff every now and then, let people know we're God. No, they're all involved. God, Lord, and Spirit. In other words, Jesus was really serious when he said, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. This supernatural ability must have really been on God's mind. It must have been really high on God's priority list relative to the beginning of the church. Well, relative to the church. There is only one church. A lot of people talk about the early church and the present-day church, and we can say that for the sake of... of, uh, um, clarification, but there's only one church. We started this church in January of 86. Well, if you were here, you were here in the early days of the church, but we're the same church today. We've got more people. We've got a better place to, to minister, to congregate, but we're the same church. Same thing's true with the, the early church, the church in the book of Acts. Nothing has changed as far as God is concerned except time periods. Verse 7. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit with all. For to one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom, to another the word of knowledge by the same Spirit, to another faith, the Amplified says special faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healings, both he gifts and healings are in the plural in the original translation. To another, the gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, diverse kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. Verse 11, but all these work. All these worketh, that one and self-same Spirit, dividing to every man severally as he wills. Now, folks, I want you to notice something about this. I want you to notice, and we could do this with any of the nine manifestations of the Spirit that make this list. But notice the first one, he says, for the one is given by the Spirit the word of wisdom. Do you see that? Each one of these nine manifestations of the Spirit is a supernatural manifestation, a supernatural appearing, a supernatural flash or lightning of God that is apart from ordinary, what we, uh, for lack of a better term, ordinary wisdom. Now, when I say ordinary wisdom, we know that the Bible says that there is an earthly wisdom. There's a wisdom of the world that will come to naught. There's a wisdom that comes through the study of the Word. Joshua chapter 1, verse 8 says, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do all that's written therein. For then thou shalt have good success, and then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. I, I inverted those two. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Another translation says it this way, then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, the word of God is the beginning of wisdom. So you can develop a godly wisdom 
from the Word of God. Hold your finger here, but turn with me over to James chapter 1. Let me show you something else about wisdom to show you the difference in the supernatural manifestation called the Word of Wisdom. James chapter 1. We'll start in verse 2. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. That's hard to do sometimes, isn't it? Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Now, the word temptations, when you fall into diverse temptations, means test trials or afflictions. It means adversity. So that's the context of what he's talking about. He's saying there's trouble in this life, and when you find yourself in the middle of trouble, count it all joy. Realize that it's a trial of your faith, but you come out good on the other side. Everybody has storms. Everybody has rain in your life. The key is to learn to dance in the rain. Someone once said. Now notice verse 5. In context with being in troublous times or difficult times, difficult situations, notice what he said in verse 5. He said, if any of you lack wisdom. Now, folks, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30 says, Jesus has made unto us wisdom. So how can you lack wisdom if Jesus has made unto you wisdom? Well, Jesus is the Word made flesh, meaning the Word of God, which is deposited in our heart as we feed on the written Word of God, that wisdom will grow and develop so that we can mature spiritually. But that doesn't mean that in every situation you're going to know exactly what to do and exactly what step to take. You can be filled with the wisdom of God and still not know exactly what do I do in this situation. That's what he's talking about. If you're in a situation where you don't know, where you haven't come to the understanding yet, what do I do here? He tells you, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. But then he cautions you, he said, but make sure to ask in faith. It's got to be a faith prayer. It's got to be the prayer of faith for this wisdom to know what to do in the middle of adversity. Now, notice what he said. He said, if you'll ask in faith for wisdom what to, for what to do in your situation, God will give that to everybody. He gives that to all men liberally and upbraids or withholds not, right? Go back with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Notice the difference. It says in verse 8, it says, for the one is given by the Spirit. The word of wisdom. So this word of wisdom talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 can't be natural wisdom. It can't even be wisdom, natural wisdom. Uh, it's certainly not earthly, earthly wisdom. It's not natural wisdom that we develop through the knowledge of the word. It's not even wisdom that we get by asking God, what do we do in a hard place or in a difficult situation? This is something that belongs to only some or a few. For to one is given the word of wisdom, not to everybody. So the wisdom that's spoken of over in James and the wisdom that's spoken of by Paul in other places relative to Jesus and the Word making us wise or providing us wisdom can't be this manifestation of the Spirit. It's impossible. Now, this is talking about a flash of God's revelation that reveals His plan and purpose, usually future events. Well, always, always future things, maybe not events, but always something relative to the future. Now, in the same way, let me show you something else. 
Notice that one of these manifestations in, uh, identified in verse 10, it says, to another is given diverse kinds of tongues. Literally, it's just kinds of tongues. But diverse doesn't hurt us there. It helps us understand that different types of tongues are used. Diverse kinds of tongues and to another the interpretation of tongues. Paul goes further in verse in uh, chapter 14 to say that in a public assembly, the manifestation of the Spirit regarding tongues should always be accompanied by the manifestation of the Spirit called interpretation of tongues. Otherwise, he said the church is not edified. Well, that's not what happened in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. Nobody interpreted that which was spoken in other tongues. It says when they were all in one place with one accord, they heard a sound of rushing mighty wind and saw cloven tongues of fire sitting on all of them. And they were filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It said they spilled out into the streets. And as a result, everybody heard. The streets there literally means out into the middle of the temple. This happened in the temple. That's where this upper room was. It was in a place in the temple, the outer courtyard. And as a result, when they're out now into the temple where it's packed because of the feast of Pentecost, when the people hear them speaking in other tongues, it said that they heard them speak in their own languages. Now, it does not say that they spoke those languages. It says the people heard them speak in their languages. Now, I'm not saying they didn't speak in those other languages. They may have. But you can't conclude just from what the Bible says that they did. Because, see, that's where some people nowadays try to take away the supernatural manifestation of tongues. They'll say, well, now we've learned languages, so we don't need this manifestation of tongues and interpretation. Okay. I guess people didn't learn other languages in their day. That's interesting because Paul said he spoke Greek and Hebrew in different situations. Yet he said, I speak with tongues more than you all. Don't folks, each one of these manifestations are supernatural. But my point is this. That which you receive when you're filled with the Holy Spirit and begin to speak in other tongues by the utterance of the, of the Holy Ghost, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, that's not this manifestation of tongues and interpretation. That's why Paul said, I speak with tongues more than all of you, but in the church I'd rather speak with my own voice. Why? Apparently God didn't use him in tongues and interpretation in public settings much. So he said, I spend my time speaking in other tongues in my private prayer life because I don't have that manifestation of tongues and interpretation. Therefore, me speaking in tongues publicly wouldn't help you. And the whole context that he's talking about here is using these things for the benefit of other people. That's why chapter 12 and chapter 14 is brackets chapter 13, which talks about the love of God. Use these things based on the love of God. Now let me show you something else. Notice in chapter 14. We'll just pick up. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's start in verse 12. We'll read down through a little bit more than what I intended to, but it'll all be good, and I'm running out of time anyway. Even so you, forasmuch as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. Can I suggest, folks, that the reason that they have the manifestation of the Spirit in the measure that they do, even though they're doing some things out of order, the reason that they have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit is because they are zealous of spiritual gifts. 
the very thing that Paul wrote to the church and said, covet the best gifts. Seek after the best gifts. Follow love, but seek after these spiritual manifestations. They do, and that's why they have them. So they're not ignorant in that respect, are they? No, but notice they're ignorant of the purpose of these manifestations of the Spirit. He said, for as much as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel to the edifying of the church. In other words, he said, be just as zealous as you are for spiritual gifts and spiritual manifestations, but be zealous for them to bless everybody, not just a few. Wherefore, to that end, here's what they need to know. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. In other words, quit speaking out in tongues in your services because it doesn't help anybody except the person speaking out in tongues. And you need to put first everybody's benefit and not just your own. Yeah, it feels good, but wait till later unless there's an interpretation. And then it'll make everybody feel good. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. Now, folks, the last thing I want to do is speak disparagingly of the vocal gifts of the Spirit. You need to realize that just as in Acts chapter 2, when they were filled with the Spirit, the first thing we see in evidence is speaking in other tongues. Very often, that's the doorway to the rest of the manifestations of the Spirit. So don't think that Paul is speaking disparagingly. Neither do I intend to speak disparagingly of tongues and interpretation. Or tongues without interpretation. Folks, I spend more, I, I have no idea how many hours a day I spend speaking in tongues. I'm speaking in tongues all the time. That's why I try to stay away from people as much as I can. It's not just my personality. I try to stay away from people for the purpose of speaking in other tongues. I can't tell you how many times a night I wake up speaking in tongues. It's just the way that it is for me. So I don't take a dim view, and neither is Paul taking a dim view of speaking in tongues. It's the entrance. So he said, uh, Wherefore, let him that speaketh in an unknown tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in an unknown tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. My spirit is communicating with God, but my head doesn't know what's going on. What will I do then? What is it then? What, is it, what should I do? In other words, he's saying, I'm not satisfied with, not, with my head not knowing what's going on. What is it then? Here's what I'll do. I will pray with the Spirit, meaning you can speak in tongues at your will. That's not this manifestation of the Spirit that's spoken of in 1 Corinthians 12. It can't be. Because that comes as a supernatural gift or manifestation of the Holy Ghost that's given you. So there is a difference then between you choosing to speak with tongues and the Holy Ghost coming upon you and manifesting for the purpose of blessing everybody in tongues. That second one will always be accompanied with interpretation. What is it then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. You can pray with your, with, uh, with your known language any way you want, anytime you want to, can't you? I assume English is your first language or first language for most of us. We can pray in English anytime we want to, can't we? Well, the Bible says you can do the same thing with tongues. You can speak with tongues at your will just like you can speak any other language. You decide. And Paul says it's good to do both. I will pray with the Spirit and I will pray with the understanding also. 
He goes further and says, I will sing with the Spirit. That means you can sing in tongues anytime you want to. And I will sing with the understanding also. Just like you can sing in English, you can sing in tongues. Else, when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, notice what one thing that happens, or one of the uses for speaking in other tongues is, is blessing, speaking a spiritual blessing in a language that you don't know. Else when thou shalt bless with the Spirit, how shall he that occupies the room of the unlearned say amen at thy giving of thanks, seeing he understandeth not what you're saying? Now, folks, it would be entirely scriptural if we were to have a church dinner and all of us here know about the baptism of the Holy Ghost, all of us are filled with the Spirit, and we say, let's just bless the food in other tongues. That would be completely scriptural. We may not know what we're saying, we may be speaking things that has nothing to do with the food. Because you don't control that. You don't control what you're talking about in other tongues. But it would be completely scriptural to do that because it would cause us all to recognize the power of the Holy Ghost and the presence of the Holy Ghost in us, right? But what if we've got some people there that aren't filled with the Spirit and don't know what's going on? They're going to say, what is with these people? They said they were going to say the blessing, and then all of a sudden they started talking this weird stuff. Because they wouldn't understand about spiritual things. They wouldn't understand about the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's what Paul's trying to correct. That seems to be an area of ignorance in the Corinthian church. He says in verse 17, he said, For thou verily giveth thanks well. Speaking in tongues is blessing with the Spirit and thanking God in the Spirit, according to Paul. He said, For verily you give thanks well. But the other is not edified. The other doesn't know what you said. The other is not edified because they don't understand these things about the Spirit. Which means there are some things about the Holy Ghost that should be in operation just when it's us. But there are other things of the Holy Ghost, other manifestations of the Spirit that should operate outside just us. So that we can be witnesses. So that we can do the works of Jesus. For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank my God, I speak with tongues more than you all. Now, folks, these people spoke with tongues every time they got together. And Paul says, I still speak with tongues more than you do. Yet in the church. Yet in the church. I realize I can speak with tongues when I want to, just like I can speak with English or Greek or whatever Hebrew, whatever Paul spoke in his day. I can speak whatever language I want to just as much as I can speak in tongues whenever I want to. But my interest is that the people be edified so in the church, in the church, though I speak with tongues more than all of you, yet in the church I'd rather speak five words with my understanding, a known language, that by my voice I might teach others also than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. Why? What's wrong with 10,000 words in an unknown tongue? Nothing. It would help Paul, but it wouldn't help the people that are there with him. Can you see the point that he's making? That's all he's saying about tongues and interpretation. He's saying that the manifestation of the Spirit in a church should be accompanied, manifestation of, of speaking in tongues in a church service should be accompanied with, with interpretation so that everybody's blessed, everybody's edified, everybody knows what's going on, saved or unsaved. Can you see it? Let's go further. Brethren, be not children in understanding, howbeit in malice be children, but in understanding be men. In other words, he's saying grow up. Now, stay childlike when it comes to love and, you know, walking in love and things like that, but grow up when it comes to the knowledge of the spiritual things. 
In the law it is written, with men of other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. That's not correct, folks. Men of is in italics. The translators put it in there. You go back and look at what Isaiah said. It says, with tongues and other lips, other tongues and other lips will I speak unto this people. That's the prophecy of the Old Testament, not men. You can see where the translators are trying to think that it's about people and not about the operation of the Spirit. With other tongues and other lips, I will speak unto these people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, saith the Lord. Wherefore, tongues are a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not. What's he saying? He's saying just like Isaiah prophesied that in the church age, and not until the church age, he would speak to his people. God would speak to his people in tongues, in other tongues, in other languages, manifest by the Holy Ghost. That has to be, therefore, connected in the church with interpretation so that everybody is blessed. So then he says, because of Isaiah's prophecy, we know, therefore, that tongues are a sign to the unbeliever. He did not say that tongues get people saved. He said tongues are a sign to the unbelievers. Now, can I ask you a question? On the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Ghost was poured out, rushing mighty wind, cloven tongues of fire, they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gives them utterance. What was the end result of that? What was the end result? Think about it. The Bible says that the people, many of them said, these people are drunk. So don't think it was just an automatic, oh, God is here. Some people say, these people are drunk. Which tells us, by the way, I have never been to a bar. I spent too much time in college in bars and things like that. I'm ashamed of it, but I did learn something. One thing I learned that I never in a bar saw anybody speaking in other tongues. What about speaking in other tongues would cause these people to think that they were drunk? Drunks don't speak in other tongues. I never once in my life got drunk and spoke in other tongues. Have you? Don't, don't answer that. <laughs> Nobody does. That's not the way it works. So what would cause the people to hear them speaking in other tongues say, these people are drunk? There must have been something else going on around this experience that made them appear to be drunk other than just what they said. The impact of the Holy Ghost, the presence of the Holy Ghost upon them may have changed their behavior to such a degree that people thought they're like drunk people. Maybe they're staggering around. Maybe they're impacted in such a way that they look to be drunk. It's got to be something that makes them think that. Now, I don't know what it is. And I know a lot of people try to put their own interpretation on it. And a lot of people say, well, here's what it is, and so here's what we ought to do. That's not my purpose. I'm just saying that some people thought they were drunk, and other people said that this is God. Why? Because they knew the prophecy of Isaiah. That's why this had to happen in the temple, folks. Who was it assigned to? The unbelievers. Now, it doesn't mean they were disinterested in God because they were at the temple for the Feast of Pentecost. But they were still unsaved. But it wasn't the tongues that got them saved. It was Peter preaching after they spoke with tongues and told them about Jesus that got 3,000 of them saved. Right? So tongues are assigned to the unbeliever. It doesn't mean tongues are used to win the unbeliever. It means tongues are a sign that the church age has begun and God is here with us. That's all it means. I know of one person that went out witnessing. Pastor told me about this. 
person decided they were going to go door-to-door witnessing in their town. So they went to the door, didn't know what to say, so started speaking in tongues. You got to wonder about some people. He said it created such a mess. She did that all up and down the block. He said it created such a mess for our church. Now, I just automatically assume people have better sense than that. And I guess we'll make a mistake making that assumption. Tongues aren't used to get people saved unless they're, they could be with interpretation. But they're a sign. It doesn't mean everybody will come running to you. It means they'll recognize, well, you know, that tongue stuff is talked about for the church. That's all it means, folks. Wherefore, tongues are for a sign, not to them that believe, but to them that believe not, the unbelievers. But prophesying, prophesying serves not for them that believe not. Prophesying is not for the unbeliever. Prophesying is for them which believe. If therefore the whole church be come together in one place and all speak with tongues, and there come in some that are unlearned or unbelievers. Notice there are two classes. He's saying unbelievers, meaning unsaved. But he's also saying somebody might be saved and unlearned, ignorant of these things. And there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers. Will they not say that you are mad, crazy? Won't they say that you're crazy because you're speaking in tongues in church when nobody knows what's going on? I've said this numerous times, folks, but I, 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 every time I get to the Scripture, it, it reminds me of this. It came, to such a, it came to me as such a revelation, such a comfort, that God doesn't want Pentecostal churches to be known as crazy. Oh, man, that brought me peace. Because every Pentecostal church I had been, up, been in up to that point in time were nuts. And it made me draw back. Because I'm not nuts. I'm not some loon, and I don't want people to, to associate me with Looney Tune people. Verse 24, but if all prophesy, and there comes in one that believes not or is unlearned, he is convinced of all and he is judged of all, and thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God and report that God is in you of a truth. Please notice what he's saying when he uses the word prophesy. He's there are two ways to use the word prophesy. We do the same things today. Prophecy can mean something specific or it can mean something general. We use the word prophecy or prophetic or something like that to mean all kinds of things. You hear people talking about having prophetic ministries. What does that mean? Well, most of the time people think that people are talking about end time stuff. They preach on the book of Revelation. Many times people talk about prophetic worship. I've never figured out what that's supposed to mean. Only thing I figured out is that's supposed to be a catch to get you to buy more of their records or albums or whatever. But I don't know what that's supposed to mean. But prophecy is used in a general way. We use many other Christian words like that. For example, I call myself a preacher. When's the last time you heard me preach? Specifically, I don't preach, I teach. Preaching is proclaiming, teaching is explaining. But generally, I say I'm a preacher. So we use words that may mean something specifically to mean other things generally. He's using prophecy here in a general sense. How do we know? Look at verse 3, chapter 14, verse 3. He said, He that prophesieth speaketh unto men, that tells you who he's talking to, he's talking to men, not to God, for what purpose? To edification, exhortation, and comfort. 
Notice there is no revelation in edification, exhortation, and comfort. Now, prophecy, which is, in a general sense, inspired utterance in a known language, can be the vehicle whereby all kinds of revelation can come. We've seen examples of that. We've seen over and over again, uh, well, for example, um, uh, the book of Revelation is prophecy in a general sense. That's why people use this term prophetic ministries and so forth. Because John received a word of of, uh, revelation, not only of things past, things present, word of knowledge, past and present are word of knowledge, and things to come, future tense, which is word of wisdom. How did it come? Or how was it delivered to the church? Prophetically, he prophesied it. He's inspired to write it. Every written letter we've got in the New Testament, or well, in the Bible total, is inspired utterance by the Holy Ghost. Maybe not vocal, but it's written. The prophets of the Old Old Testament, they prophesied many things. Sometimes their prophecies had to do with present tense events. Sometimes it had to do with future tense events. That prophecy revealed things that were to come. So in a general sense, prophecy, which is given to men for edification, exhortation, and comfort, no revelation associated with it specifically or technically can be the vehicle whereby revelation comes. And that's what Paul's talking about. The mistake some people make is they think, if I prophesy, that means I've got to tell the future. Well, God may want, to sp- want you to speak something to comfort someone or to exhort them to come nearer to God or to edify them, to build them up without trying to tell the future. Not everything that comforts you from God is of the future. Right? So we need to learn to recognize the difference between the specific and the general. Here he's speaking generally. He said, but if all prophesy, if there comes in one that believes not or is unlearned, same two categories, somebody that's unsaved or somebody that's unlearned about these things, they'll hear what you're saying and understand. And as a result, in this general sense, it may bring revelation to manifest the secrets of his heart. He'll fall down on his face and say, wow, that's got to be God. There was a, um, um, this is just operation of the word of wisdom. There was a, a guy that uh, came to our church. He, uh, I didn't really remember him. I, I knew him when I saw him, but I, I, we weren't closely associated together or anything. Uh, he worked under the group that I was in charge of when I was uh, working at Rama back when I was going to school. And after we started the church, we were there on a, a it was a night service. I don't know if it was a Sunday night or Wednesday night. But this guy showed up, and I recognized him. Didn't remember where I knew him from, but I saw his face, and I thought, I know this guy. Well, he came up after the service, and his body was just racked with pain. Now, he was younger than I. He's younger than I. Well, he was younger than I am. He's since gone home to be the Lord. But he was younger than I was, and, and I, he was just all twisted up and that kind of stuff. You could tell he was having trouble moving around. And so he came up after the service, and uh, shook my hand. He said, do you remember me? And I said, well, I, I don't know where I remember you from, but your face is real familiar. And he, so he reacquainted himself with me, told me where we knew each other and, and uh, that type of thing. And uh, he said, could you pray for me? I said, sure, I'd be glad to. He said, uh, what, I asked him, I said, what do you want me to pray? And before he started to speak, before he got a word out of his mouth, I saw just quick as a flash. I had a word of knowledge. I saw it. I knew it instantly. And I stopped and I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Don't tell me anything. So I knew, I knew by the Holy Ghost, a word of knowledge, what his situation was. 
I had a word of wisdom what he was going to have to do to overcome this thing. Both of them side by side. So I said, now, if you tell me what the problem is, I could tell you by the experience of the word or knowledge of the word, here's what we're going to need to do. I said, you could take that and you take hold of that and, and that would be fine. But on the other hand, if I tell you what your situation is and then give you instruction, you'll know that's by the Holy Ghost, wouldn't you? He said, yeah. I said, all right, let me tell you what happened. So I told him the whole thing. He had gone to work with a major ministry in the western part of the country and uh, uh, had had a position with them where he was closely associated with the person in charge, very well-known person, very famous person in the States, and, uh, and had been hurt really badly. There's some things that had gone on in the ministry that uh, might not have been the best way for things to be. And, and anyway, long story short, you know, it's a real problem. When you get around famous people, people that are known of as, as men and women of God, you find out they're men and women. And if you've got them set up on a pedestal, then when you find out they're men and women, that can be really hurtful. If you go in knowing these are just men and women, and the important thing is they're used of God, then that can encourage you. I don't have to have everything straight and have everything just right for God to use me either. But he had gone in with his stars in his eyes and all this kind of stuff, and he had gotten really hurt. And so I told him, I said, here's the situation. I told him about what happened, gave him the specific details. Here's what happened. Here's what you got hurt about. Here's what the effect was. I said, now, you tell me. Did I get it right? And he said, 100%. He said, that's more detail than I would have told you or were planning to tell you about when you asked me what, what the deal was. I said, all right, then you know that what I'm going to tell you now is by the Holy Ghost because he showed me the same thing. He showed me this at the same time he showed me the other. He said, yeah, that's right. Well, I told him what he's going to have to do. And it involved him making a change to forgive instead of judgment falling on the other minister, which is what he really was looking for. I mean, after all, the people that hurt you, you either want them to die quickly or suffer for a while, right? <laughs> that's the way we are. And we only overcome that by the love of God, right? We very rarely look at situations where we got hurt and think, now what can we do to help this other person? Or what can we do to change ourselves so that we're in a better position than we are? Very few of us look to what we can do for our, uh, about ourselves. We're always looking at what the other guy needs to do. How many times are you tempted to take one of my messages to somebody else because they really need to hear it? It's the way we work. So I told him by the Holy Ghost. I said, here's what the Lord has told me to tell you. You're going to have to do this, that, and the other. And it all had to do with forgiveness. It had to do with him making a step. It had to do with him apologizing to them because of his reaction to what had happened. Now, now folks, they were in the wrong. There's no question about it. They were in the wrong in what they did. He didn't know everything about the circumstance. He didn't know everything behind it. But they were wrong in the way they handled it. So the instruction that I gave him by the Holy Ghost is, here's what you're going to need to do. And I said, if you tell me you're willing to do that, then I'll pray for you and God will heal you. He looked at me right in the eye. His eyes started tearing up, and then he dropped his head. He said, Mike, I just can't do that. What are you supposed to do in a situation like that? What are you supposed to do? I've just made this, I, I say I, the Holy Ghost, has used me to make the secrets of his heart manifest. He's got an opportunity to turn this thing around and receive his healing. That guy was dead in less than six months. 
And he wasn't 40 years of age. Now, I'm, I'm thrilled that he's shouting up and down the streets of glory. But he didn't finish his work here. But he had an opportunity by the Holy Ghost to turn it around. What are you supposed to do? Here's a manifestation of the Holy Ghost. Here's supernatural ability to help the guy. God's moved in a spectacular way to help him. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? There's nothing we could do. I was shocked. I thought, I, just me thinking, God didn't show me anything, but just me thinking, I thought he'd say, well, okay, by the Holy, since you've shown me by the Holy Ghost, I see what I need to do. I may not like it, but I see what I need to do. I'll turn that around. I'll make good on that. I'd pray for him and he'd be healed. When he said, I can't do that, I thought, well, gee, that's all I got. I told him, I said, I can't pray for you. I, 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 I just can't pray for you. So he hobbled himself out. I heard later that he had died before that end of that year. What a tragedy. What a shame. Thus are the secrets of his heart made manifest. He will fall down on his face and worship God and say God's here in, in truth. Now, folks, I would submit something to you, and I'll leave you with this. We'll close with this, but I would submit something to you. That's what the Holy Ghost wants churches to look like. This is not because some pastor or somebody somewhere at some special church has some special gift. This is what Paul is saying about how prophecy generally can bring forth revelation to bring sinners into the kingdom of God. I'll finish with reminding you Zechariah chapter 10 verse 1. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the time of the latter rain. And the Lord shall make bright clouds or lightnings. Talking about these manifestations of the Holy Ghost. Manifestations of the Holy Ghost. And give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. Here's what that means. You put those, that scripture together with this concept. Here's what that means. That means just as the Holy Ghost wants the church to be a place where the secrets of men's hearts are manifest so that unbelievers come into the kingdom of God, there will be a rise of that, there will be an increase of that at the end times to bring in the precious fruit of the earth. Just as it's God's plan for churches to look like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there will be an increase of this revelation, an increase of the manifestation of the Holy Ghost to manifest the secrets of people's hearts so that the world is saved. So I don't want you to be ignorant of these things. I don't want you to be ignorant of these things pertaining to the Holy Ghost. This is what God wants. This is what God's planned. This is, what are, are, these are, this is a part of, at least, the things that are ahead. Thus saith the Holy Ghost. That's what the Holy Ghost is trying to get across to us. He's trying to show us His plan never has changed. And in fact, we can expect an increase because of the days and the times that we live in. Let's pray.
Lord, we worship you. We magnify your name. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that we have an unction from you and we know all things. We thank you that you manifest yourself. We thank you that you have given us supernatural abilities to fulfill the plan and the purpose of God. Not according to our will. We don't get to pick and choose these things, but we do get to be used of God to accomplish your plan and purpose. Holy Spirit, teach us. Reveal that which we need to see. Quicken us to that which we need to do. Father, we want our part in the last day harvest, the precious fruit of the earth. We want our part. We want to see people's lives changed. With heads bowed and eyes closed, nobody looking around. If there's anybody here this morning that you, you don't know Jesus. Maybe you've heard Jesus preached as going to the cross and dying on the cross. And being raised from the dead. But maybe you've never heard that the Christian life is intended to be a supernatural life. One with power. Jesus did not leave us alone. He gave us a comforter. And he said that it was better for us that he goes away so that the comforter could be with us. That means there's power for your situation. There's power to overcome your problems. There's direction. And there's peace. If you're here today and would say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. It comes simply through saying a prayer. In that prayer, you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior because you choose to believe that the Bible is true, that he did go to the cross, that he did die, he was buried and he did raise, was raised from the dead three days later. There's a peace that comes from Jesus entering your heart that only he can give. It's a peace that doesn't compare to anything else in the world. It's a rest. There's a finality to it. Now I'm at peace. That peace is yours if Jesus is your Lord and Savior. So if there's anybody here that would say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I want to make Jesus my Lord and Savior today. Would you just raise your hand, please? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Nobody's looking around. This is between you and God. Just raise your hand right where you are. Say, pray for me. I want to be born again.
All right. If you're here and you might say, I'm already saved, but I'm not filled with the Holy Spirit. And I'm talking about what Acts chapter 2 talks about. They were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. That's the experience that they received, the, the disciples, the 120, received after they were saved, after they were born again, that Jesus told them to wait for to be witnesses because of the power that it brings. If you're here this morning and say, Pastor Mike, I am saved. I know Jesus is my Lord, but I've never been filled with the Spirit, and I want to receive Him today. Would you raise your hand, please? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Are there others? Yes, sir. I see you back there. Thank you. It comes from a simple prayer, too. Based on the Word of God, God always honors His Word. All right. For those, I, th I think I saw three. For those three people that raised your hand to be filled with the Spirit, just you, if you would open your eyes. Everybody else, please keep an attitude of prayer. But if just you three people would open your eyes and look up here at me, I want to talk to you for just a minute. You've indicated that you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit. God wants you to be filled more than you want to be. If I called you up here to the front to pray for you, you might be concerned about what I would say or how we would do it or what people around you are thinking or what time it is or who knows whatever number of things you might be thinking about. So what we found is we found it's more effective to take you to a side room where you're not surrounded with people. You can be ministered to one-on-one. -on -one. It doesn't mean you'll be isolated if you brought somebody with you and you want them to go with you to the, to the prayer room. Just tap them on the shoulder or the leg or something. I'm sure they'd be glad to go. They're welcome to come and, and join you. But I'm going to ask you to gather up your things. There's a gentleman right over here. He's going to move back to those, uh, those glass doors into the hallway. And he's going to lead you to the prayer room. So if you will gather your things now and make your way out of your seat and meet him right there at those glass doors, he'll take you to where the prayer room is where you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. You can go ahead and do that now. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for these people's lives that you're changing today as you fill them with your spirit. Would you stand together with us in the congregation? We want to pray for these that just left. Father, in Jesus' name, we pray for each and every one that went to the prayer room. We thank you that your word is true, so by faith we declare that they shall receive the Holy Spirit. We thank you for the prayer room workers, Father. Give them utterance to say exactly the right thing in exactly the right way. We thank you for a great measure of the Spirit that comes upon them, that each and every one of them leaves today endued with power and speaking with other tongues. In Jesus' precious name. If you can agree with that, say amen.